If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisle right now. We'd like you to be able to listen to everything that's being uh, taught, but we also like you to be able to follow along with your eyes. And so just get their attention. Don't be bashful. And uh, they'll get a Bible into your hands and you can read along with us and study along with us this morning with your own eyes. On Sunday morning, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. We want to learn everything that we can about our Savior, and so it's a great joy to hit all of these different subjects. If it's important enough for the Holy Spirit to record in His Word, then I want to know everything about it, and if it's important enough for our Savior to speak it, then I want to uh, have it impact me fully, and I know you feel the same way. John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus speaking, and He said, If you love me, speaking to disciples, to Christians, If you love me, keep my commandments. And then down in verse 21, he said, And he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's the third time he said it. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Let's pray together. Lord, we're really humbled and we... Never cease to feel it. Never cease to um, just be in awe of the fact that we have your word in our hands, Lord. Uh, The way to build our lives, the place, the instruction to build our lives and our eternities on, Lord, that will never, ever leave us ashamed. And we thank you for the degree to which... Each of us that knows you has been able to build our lives upon the solid rock of your word. And we have experienced the trustworthiness and the supernaturalness of it, Lord. And it makes us want to continue to build more and more upon your truth. And we pray that you would open up this passage to us today and show us in a greater measure how we might do that. And we pray for each one that stands before you that is not yet a Christian. They haven't yet put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. And we just acknowledge your great love for them. We acknowledge, Lord, their search for truth and the meaning in life by their presence here. And, Lord, we just acknowledge your great desire to bring them into your family. And we pray that today there would be just the right work of your Holy Spirit in this room and in their lives, Lord, that that great surrender would occur today and that they would enter into life as you have planned for them. And we ask all these things of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that Jesus is with his disciples in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem on the very night before his death upon the cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. The theme or the uh, of and tone of the whole scene that Jesus is in with the disciples is dominated by this theme of separation. Jesus has told the disciples 
that he is leaving, that following his death, his burial and his resurrection, he is going to return to the heaven that he had come from. Now, the response, to, the impact of this news to upon the disciples was very, very dramatic. We're told that it left them very troubled. And in response to this anxiety, Jesus has already told them, as we've seen in recent weeks, he has promised to them in the light of this kind of separation anxiety that one day he would return. And, of course, that would have been a, a tremendous comfort to them, not only to them, but also to us. And then Jesus seemed to uh, anticipate and to answer a series of questions that his departure would produce in the minds of the disciples, as we saw last time. Questions like, what's going to happen to the work, Jesus, that, that you've started here in this world? What, what's going to happen when you leave? And Jesus responded that the work of the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of his word, the signs and the wonders and the miracles would continue, but they would continue now by the Holy Spirit through the disciples. A second question that they, he anticipated that they would ask and that he answered was, how in the world were they going to be able to communicate him, to, with him in the light of this separation if they could no longer just go right up to him face to face and speak to him? And Jesus informed them that communication with him would continue to be as instant and as effective as it had ever been, but now through this means called prayer. And now for our purposes this morning, Jesus seems to anticipate a third great question from them. Question being, how will we be able to express our love to you during this great period of separation between the time of your leaving us and the time of your return? And that's the question that Jesus answers in verses 15 and verses 21 through 24. And I'll tell you, I'm thankful uh, for that answer to this question, because it's a question that's important for all of us. Up to now, you think about the disciples when they wanted to express their love to Jesus. It was easy enough to do. Just go up to him, give him a good Jewish bear hug and kiss him on both cheeks and tell him that they love him face to face. And but all of that's going to change now. They're not going to be able to see him face to face the way that they have for three and a half years. And so. Because they're not going to be able to express their love for him in this way. Um, now they're wondering how in the world are they going to be able to do it? We love him, but how in the world do we express our love to him? How can we express our love to the Lord for all that he's done for us past this room today? How can I express my love to God for all that he's already done in my life? dominating my past? How can I express my love to him for all that he is in my life right now in the present of my life, in the, this instant in which I'm alive? How in the world can we express our love to him for all of the promises that he's given to us concerning our futures? How do we express our love for him for the forgiveness of sins? If, there were, if he had done nothing else but that, how do we express our love to him for the forgiveness of sins? 
for bearing the very penalty that my sin deserved upon his own body on that cross. How do we express our love to him for providing us with a living hope in life? How do you live life without hope? He's given us a hope that can stand in the face of all that life would throw against it, even death itself. He's given us a living hope for his love for us, for his unfailing faithfulness to us. How do we express our love for his patience with us? For his ministry of comfort to us, for his guidance, his direction, his active involvement in each one of our lives, for a personal relationship with him, for everlasting life, for the confidence of heaven, and on and on we could go. And to know Christ, and to know what it is that he's done, past, present, and will do future for us, is to love him, is to love him with such a great love that we find ourselves with a deep, deep desire to express it. We want him to know that we love him. But how in the world can we communicate our love for him? How best can we communicate our love to him for how good he's been to us? And here Jesus tells us the very best way to do it. And it really is priceless revelation, priceless instruction for all of us who know the Lord and love the Lord in life, if there is a person that we love very much, it's amazing the lengths that we will go to in order to express our love. The amount of time that we will stand in a Hallmark store looking through endless cards, and then finally you say, none of them say it, and you buy a blank one. You go fill it in on your own. And, and that desire to express our love in, in that way, to pick out just the right card that would communicate our feelings. Or we might ask around concerning someone we love, what it is that they might want in terms of a physical gift or a gift certificate to some store or some restaurant that would be the most special blessing to them. How do we do that for God? How do you give something to someone who already has everything? And he possesses everything. He doesn't need anything. So how do you express your love to someone like that? And I think wonderfully Jesus tells us here, the single greatest way that we can express our love to Christ is through a love-motivated obedience to his commandments. Verse 15, the single greatest way that you and I can express the greatness of our love for Christ the love for we have for him today, it won't be what it'll be tomorrow, but it is what it is today. It's always growing. The single greatest way to express our love for him is in a love-motivated obedience to his commandments. Now, there are a lot of different ways to express our love uh, to Jesus. We can do it through words. We can do it through prayer. We can do it through praise. We can do it through worship. We've just done that. But if those expressions are not coupled with an obedient life 
They mean nothing to him as an expression of love. We have a saying in this culture, don't we? Actions speak louder than words. Why is that saying? Why is that saying been passed down through the ages and every generation learns it? Because it's true. There's truth in it. Jesus is saying as much in this. Actions speak louder than words. I'll tell you what parent doesn't understand this. Raising a child, if they were to ask us, what would be the greatest thing that they could do to express their love for us? Most of us would be very quick to answer. Just simply obey me. Just obey what I tell you to do. Because without obedience and the respect that obedience shows to us as parents, then anything they would say in terms of words means almost nothing in terms of an expression of love. If a child comes into the room and says to her mom, I love you, and she is living a life of rebellion and disobedience, the mother would be inclined to say something like, your words don't mean anything to me in the light of your life. They're just words. If you really want to, if you really loved me, you wouldn't be such a problem to me. You would obey the commandments that I've given you to obey. Without obedience, every other expression of love is spoiled. It's marred. And, and no one can, as a result of it, take it seriously. Even God can't take it seriously. And so it is with us as God's children. Our love for God is not expressed supremely, and supremely is a qualifying word. Our love for God is not expressed supremely through our words. As wonderful as they are and as right a place as they have in a relationship with God. But our love for God is expressed supremely through obedience. Verbal expressions of love, they don't mean anything if they aren't coupled also with an obedient life. So the single greatest way we have for expressing our love for Jesus to Jesus is to obey his commandments. Now, Jesus is also communicating here that he desires the motivation behind our obedience to him to be love. Our obedience to his commandments is to be uh, is to be done out of a motive of love. Our obedience to his commandments is never to be done grudgingly. I don't think any of us likes anything done for us that is done by a person who does it grudgingly. I know if somebody gave me something and they gave it to me grudgingly or I found out later that they begrudged having given it to me, I would take it out of my house or out of my garage take it to them and hand it to them. Because if something is given grudgingly, every single time I would look at it, rather than it be being able to look at it as an expression of someone's love toward me, I would look at it and all I could think about was that this was given to me by a person who did it grudgingly. And I wouldn't want, it, it would again mar the, and spoil the whole thing. I wouldn't want it to be around me. So I would return it. If someone asked help or a favor of someone and the person agreed to help, but they did it grudgingly, I would just say to them, no, thank you. I don't want the help. 
I'd rather have the faucet leak than to have someone like you come and help me with it. Because every time I looked at the faucet, I'd be reminded of your attitude toward me in accomplishing it. So I'd rather not get it done than get it done with the help of someone who did it grudgingly. God is the same way. He's not always like us, but in this he is like us. Concerning the free will offering that uh, God had commanded Moses to make of the children of Israel in the book of Exodus for the building of the tabernacle and all of the furnishings of, of the tabernacle, God declared, spoke through Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. So God wanted an offering, a free will offering for the uh, building of these things. He could have built, created money and done it in an instant, but he wanted his people to be involved in it. And he says, from everyone who gives it willfully with his heart, you shall take my offering. He didn't want anything given to him grudgingly. Into the New Testament, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and they seemed to have people that would give, but they would give grudgingly. And so the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul and said, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity, that is compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giving. He, a giver, he didn't want anything given to him then or now that someone would give grudgingly because it would mar the whole thing. Now, there are lots of other motives for obeying God's commandments, uh, but all of them are very inferior to the motive of love. Some Christians try to obey God's commandments out of legalism. And so they will say, God has given us his laws here in the word of God. They are to be kept and I will keep them. And so they do. But the problem with this kind of an approach to God's commands, the problem with legalism as a motivation for obeying God's word is that very often the legalist ends up having a relationship with the commandments of God instead of a relationship with God himself. There's a very big difference in the quality of those two Christianities. They end up with a very deep knowledge of the Bible as a rule book. And they'll be happy to share it with you. But they also end up with a very, very shallow personal relationship with God. And you look at them and you say, how can a person know the Bible that well and have such a shallow personal relationship and intimacy with God? It's because their obedience comes out of legalism and not out of a love for God. A love-motivated obedience to Jesus' commandments takes me deeper and deeper in a personal relationship with him, while a heartless, emotionless obedience does not. It is very, very important here in this passage to understand that what Jesus is calling for here, what he is promising to bless, is not just obedience to his commandments. What blesses him and what he promises 
to bless when he comes into contact with it is a love motivated obedience to his commandments. Now, some Christians obey God's commandments out of a motive of uh, manipulating God or earning something from him. So it's kind of like the child at Christmas time who gets good for about three weeks because Santa's got this list and he's checking it twice and going to find out who's naughty or nice. And the whole thing's a manipulation. By the time all the packages are opened up on January uh, on, uh, uh, that's that's for you if you celebrate after the sales. More and more people are doing that, by the way. On December 25th, I mean, no sooner are the packages opened up and the child is back to his old behavior. So sometimes we can be really, really good for a, a short period of times in the hope of getting that new bike or that, that new toy. And all of it's an attempt, even in obeying the Lord in this kind of a way, an attempt to manipulate God. So the problem is, is that God will never reinforce uh, manipulation in our lives or bless it or honor it with a, a new bike or a new toy or a new anything. And so then after a while, this kind of person that is obeying out of this kind of a motivation, they're tempted to give up on obeying Jesus' commandments at all because it doesn't seem to pay. And what they don't realize is that they are not obeying Jesus' commandments out of a love for him, but out of a love for themselves, what they can get out of the relationship. And it's a con. Sometimes, as Christians, we can discover that the single greatest motivation, if we were just to stop and really be honest with ourselves, the single greatest motivation for obedience to the Lord is our own pride. Not out of a love for Jesus supremely, but out of a desire to be thought of highly by other people. To be thought of as deeply spiritual by other people. And again, all of that is self-dominated and doesn't bring Jesus any kind of pleasure at all. It has no hope, really, of being successful over the long haul of life. The fear of man is a terrible motivation for obeying Jesus compared, compared to the motive of because we love him. The, the guilt, condemnation, these are terrible motivations for people in my position, like a pastor, to use guilt and condemnation to get people to obey God's word. I try never to do it. I don't say that I never do it. I never willingly do it. I can never think of a time that I've, I've done that. Where you look and you say, listen, you better and you ought, or he's going to hammer you with the biggest hand, and then the guilt and, and all of this uh, kind of thing. I'm not above doing it. I could do it as easily as the next person. I just know it never works. It works for a short period of time. You can get great results out of that kind of thing for six weeks, for six months, maybe 18 months. And then everybody collapses under the weight of it. Sometimes you might wonder, why, are they, why the Bible? They go, spend so much time in the Bible. Why on Sunday nights, going from Genesis to Revelation, why invest that kind of time? Because as we learn the Bible, we come to know God better. And to the degree that we know God is the degree to which we fall in love with him. Because he's absolutely wonderful. 
And he's easy to fall in love with. And so for me, I mean, instead of using guilt and condemnation to get results or manipulation, I just manipulate you in a little different way. I really don't do that. I just know, though, that as we just teach the Bible and as each of us comes to know God a little bit better as a result of each time that we study the Bible, it is going to, as a byproduct, increase my love for this God of the Bible, and then obedience is going to follow. It is a longer way of doing things. The results are not instantaneous, but they're long-lasting, and and they're God-honoring. And so there's lots of these different kinds of motivations, but none of them hold up and none of them compare to love. When we obey Jesus out of our love for him, now we have a motivation for obedience that will never fail us. A motivation to obey that is as big as God's love for us. Because the Bible teaches that we love him because he first loved us. Christianity is a response to the love that God has shown us. And the love that he has shown us will always be infinitely greater than any expression of love that we might offer to him. He has given us a motivation for love and obedience that is greater than any demand. He has given us a motivation for, out of love that is greater than any demand he will make to obedience out of his word. Christianity is a love-motivated, responsive obedience to the love that God has first shown us, saving us, forgiving us, blessing us, and so forth. Where you just come to a place and you say, Lord, I don't know why you put up with me. I can't believe how patient you are with me. How many times are you going to pick me up, Lord, and not cast me by the wayside? How many times are you going to teach me that same lesson, Lord, how good you are to me? Lord, what you've done for me on the cross, Lord, you are too much, you're impossible not to love. And everything, all of these things that he's done for us, it just produces a great heart of love for him. And when my obedience is in response to his love, what that does practically in my life is it makes my obedience to his commandments something that is just between me and him and nobody else. There's no triangulation. I don't obey him because of somebody else. I obey him just because of what's going on between me and him. The reason that that's important is that sooner or later, Jesus' commandments will ask each of us to do something that we would never do for another person. We just wouldn't do it for another human being. But we'll do it for him. In light of who he is. In light of what he's been to us in our lives. And then the question becomes, not whether other people are deserving of what I am about to do for them, but is God deserving 
of that act of obedience? And do I love him enough to obey him when it requires sacrifice to do so? I remember as a new Christian hearing Pastor Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I mention that because not everybody <laughs> knows who Chuck Smith. I know him very well. I think I've listened to everything he's ever put on tape. But I was listening to a cassette tape. Some of you remember those? Listening to a cassette tape on time where he was uh, talking about how particularly hard it was for him uh, to do a particular thing on the church grounds there at Costa Mesa. And he said, so often before a wedding or before a funeral, near the front doors of the entrance into the church, because sometimes uh, a lot of people that will attend those kind of services, they never go to church, so it's kind of an anxious environment for them. And if they're a smoker, they'll have one more cigarette to kind of brace themselves for when they head in there. And so a lot of times somebody will smoke right there and then they'll put this cigarette butt down on the ground and then they'll grind it into the concrete. And Chuck said he'd come around a corner there and there would be the cigarette butts. And he would then realize he needs to pick that cigarette butt up. But his mother had told him all of his growing up, son, never touch a cigarette And every time he would reach down to pick up that cigarette butt, all he could think about was his mother telling him to never touch a cigarette butt and that he was about to disobey his mother. And then he would say something like this to the Lord. Lord, I'd never do this for anybody else. I'll pick these cigarette butts up for you. I think that sooner or later in all of our Christian lives, We come to the place where Jesus commands us to do something where we can honestly say, Lord, I wouldn't do this for anybody else, but I'll do it for you. And why? Why are we willing to do that? Because God loved us first. And he has supplied us with a motivation to love and obey him that is greater than anything he'll ever ask us to do. I think that so often this area of God asking us to do something that we would only do for God occurs in our life in the realm of forgiveness, forgiving someone else. And we don't want to do it because we're still hurt by their sin. We don't want to do it because we think they'll think we're minimizing how serious their sin was against us or they'll misunderstand Our forgiveness is meaning that it wasn't such a big deal. Yet God calls on us to forgive. We come to that place where we say, Lord, I forgive them, not because they deserve it, Lord, but as an expression of my worship to you, as an expression of my love for you, I will do for you what I would never do for someone else. You see, there's no triangulation. There's no third person involved in obedience. It's just me and God. And that's the motivation that we need. And that's the motivation that God has supplied to us. I think it's wonderful to realize that every time we obey God's commandments, 
he receives that as kind of an I love you card that's been sent to him into heaven. Notice, too, that Jesus makes it equally clear, verse 24, that those who do not keep his commandments do not truly love the Lord. So he wants to make sure we understand the positive side of all this. But he also wants to be at just as clear that we understand the negative, that the negative side is true as well. If a person does not obey Jesus's commandments, then they really don't love him no matter what they say. Again, actions speak louder than words in, in this aspect of things, too. So clearly Jesus does not want to be misunderstood here. See, why doesn't he just teach it in the positive and just assume that we will draw uh, the negative implication out of it. Why does he make sure to speak the negative on this thing, the flip side of this thing? Because I think it's one of the biggest self-deceptions that exists among people who consider themselves to be Christians. He speaks this in order to obliterate what I think is one of the most common self-deceptions around. Here is a person who lives a life of deliberate disobedience to Jesus' commandments, and they are absolutely convinced in their own mind that they love Jesus supremely in life. I can't tell you how many times through the years I've spoken to someone who's drunk in a park or wherever, and I begin to speak to them about Christ. And then they will begin to tell me that they know Jesus and love Jesus with all their heart. I'm not kidding you. You've done it too. You've been out witnessing on things. And absolutely convinced of it in their own mind. Here is a man, a father, a mother out in the front yard of a house screaming even obscenities at their children. Or a man or a woman who is living in, 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 with their boyfriend or their girlfriend without being married. And you begin to witness to them about the things of the Lord. And they'll tell you that they're absolutely a Christian. They love the Lord more than anyone in all of life. Completely oblivious to the inconsistency of what they're saying and, and obviously living as if this passage doesn't exist in the Bible, which is precisely why we're studying it this morning. But this is very, very common today. It also refers to the carnal Christian or the lukewarm Christian who obeys Jesus's commandments when they're easy to obey and then thinks absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing of disobeying his word when it requires some kind of a sacrifice to do so. And yet are convinced that they're a great lover of God and a great worshiper of God. But their lives reveal that they love sin and they love self more than they love Jesus. Listen, I know this can be uncomfortable. I don't say it's uncomfortable for any particular person in the room. But it must be said, it's a terrible self-deception that surrounds us. And that's how Jesus 
correctly understands it from that kind of a person. He doesn't understand that this person loves me supremely. Yes, yes, it's wonderful. He says, no, they love sin and they love themselves more. And sometimes we can even convince ourselves in an environment like this. You can even go to a, a nice church like Calvary Chapel in Modesto. There's a lot of others like him, in, like this in Modesto. Living a life of deliberate disobedience to the Lord. I'm not talking about being perfect. None of us is perfect. But protracted Long-term, willful disobedience against the Lord. And the feeling is if I can come in and if I can somehow feel God during the service, most particularly during the worship and song part of the service, if I get some kind of that old feeling there that it must mean that I'm okay with God and, and worse, that God is okay with me. The Bible says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. And it's a terrible self-deception. And Jesus doesn't want us living in self-deception, so he says it. Now, let me close. Um, This will be my first closing. I'm just kidding. Let me close in verses 21 through 23 with the blessings that Jesus lists here of a love-motivated Obedience. See, here's the thing with God. You can never outgive God. You can never outgive God. Whatever we give him of our obedience, whatever we give him of our love, whatever we give him of our expression of worship, he will always return it back upon us. There's always blessings associated with a love motivated obedience. And Jesus brings out three here. Notice in verse uh, 21, uh, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father. Love motivated obedience. It allows the Lord to fully express his love toward us. It allows him to fully express his love toward us because the Holy Spirit isn't grieved in our life. The Holy Spirit isn't quenched. In our life, you know, one of the cruelest things that a child can do to a parent who is a great lover of their children, the cruelest thing that a child can do to a loving parent is to live a life of disobedience and rob that parent of the joy of being able to bless their child's life in the full measure that they want to do it. That about kills a loving parent. The same thing is true of the Father. Our love-motivated obedience to the Lord is a blessing to Him because it allows Him to bless us in the full measure that He desires to in each of our lives. Notice number two, and also in verse 21. Jesus closes that verse out by saying, And I will love Him and manifest Myself to Him. Obedience allows Jesus... To manifest or to reveal himself to us as fully as he desires. To give us even greater and greater revelations of himself and of his will for our lives. If we obey the Lord, it puts us on a path with him where we get to learn things about him that we would never otherwise learn. There's a richness of fellowship with Jesus that takes place 
when I obey him, especially when it's hard to obey him, and I learn things about him, things are revealed to me there about him that I could not learn any other way. A lot of times people think that that a person can think that they're going to learn the most about the Lord by joining some kind of a deeper life club. And there's always a deeper, deeper life club going on, some fad, some phase in the body of of Christ. And if they just get glom on to this new, this is the new, you know, fantastic way to grow deep in God. But the greatest education that one can ever gain in terms of learning about God is by just simply and humbly obeying Him day by day. It's that simple. It's that simple. You run into a Christian who has such a deep knowledge of God. They know Him so well. You say, what commentary set do you use? What book did you read to learn this kind of thing? And they tell you they didn't learn it from any book. But they learned it by a long life of obeying the Lord and then watching all that God did and all that God revealed to them out of just a simple, quiet life of obedience to Him. I think it's important to understand that I cannot really expect Jesus to reveal more of himself to me or more of his ways to me when I haven't obeyed what he has already revealed to me. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Why would I reveal more to you about myself and about my will for your life when you, and I'm not talking about you personally, but this kind of person, when you have already shown that you so devalue what I have revealed to you and so insulted me in doing so, why would I give you more to insult me with, more to disregard and disrespect me with? This is why I would never, ever accept a word from the Lord or a prophecy or a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom from any person who calls himself a Christian and yet is living a life of deliberate disobedience to the Lord. I would never trust them as a spokesperson for the Lord because the Lord says he gives his revelation, greater revelation to those who live a life of simple obedience and then finally, number three in verse 23, let me read it to you. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Obedience allows us to enjoy the deepest and the most personal relationship that we can enjoy with God this side of, of heaven. The obedient life, Jesus said here, is one in which the Father and Jesus can come into a life by the Holy Spirit and be at home. You notice those words, make our home 
there in verse uh, 23. I don't know what it is in the old King James, make our abode or something like that. But that word that talks about make our home literally means to settle down and make oneself at home. In other words, to make themselves comfortable. Jesus said, this is the kind of heart and life that we can settle into and be comfortable in that in that place and in that environment. Obedience creates a wonderful environment in my heart for God's dwelling in me. And the image is a beautiful one. You just picture picture the most beautiful room that you can picture. I, I don't like to be cold. I don't mind the heat so much, but I don't like to be cold. So always a, a wonderful room to me, always in my, in my mind envisions a very cold day outside. And I am inside of some kind of a beautiful room where there's a fire going. So you picture whatever yours would be. Beautiful kind of old English library paneled in walnut books in all directions. Very, very comfortable seating there and a roaring fire in the fireplace. That's a room you can settle down in and make yourself at home in. God says that's what an obedient heart is like to him, to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus, to the Father. That's a room they can settle in for the long term and be comfortable in. That's an environment that's made for fellowship. And a lot is going to happen in that kind of a room and a lot is going to happen in that kind of life. But then if you add a television blaring some kind of an obscene movie or big argument, everybody's yelling and fighting and obscenities. And oh, not only will there not be fellowship with your guest in that room, but the room will become a complete uh, grief to him. And so a heart that's filled with disobedience is, is a grief to the presence of God when something has been allowed into our lives that really grieves our holy guest that lives inside of us and now he's not comfortable settling he's pacing in the room you know threatening to depart or something and so we need to remove that disobedience so the intimate fellowship can be restored so obedience keeps the room clean keeps the room just just the way Father and Son say, that's just the kind of room that we can settle down in and make ourselves home in. The way to deep, intimate relationship with Jesus is just by simply obeying his commandments. And again, when you see someone who has a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God, you can always know that behind it, is a long life of just simple obedience in general. Nobody's perfect. In general, to his word. And that is where the richest fellowship with God is found. When we really want to get to know Jesus, it occurs just by simply obeying him. For some of you say, you have just spent, I don't know how long, because I didn't turn my stopwatch on. All I know is I'll have you out on time. You spent how much time stating the obvious? It's not so obvious. But even if it is obvious, it is such an important reminder to each of our lives 
a not just any obedience, but a love motivated obedience to his commandments is the single greatest way that we can express our love to God. If you sit here today and you're not yet a Christian, you have never put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You might think, well, where do how, <clears throat> where do I begin this life of obedience to God's word? There was a time in Jesus's life in his ministry where a multitude came to him and somebody said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus declared to them and said, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom God the Father has sent. And that's where this life begins for you. By putting your faith, your trust for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus himself this morning. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with Jesus Christ and the relationship that we've described this morning, a relationship of great blessing from God, great intimacy with God, great blessing and goodness coming from the Lord and the way that God knows that each one of us needs. And it's all there for the asking and the receiving because Jesus has done all of the heavy lifting in our salvation. He's made it a gift that we simply Receive. Let's stand together and we'll pray.